Greetings and welcome to episode 28 of Lave Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. The show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the latest game Elite Dangerous and the community that surrounds it. I'm your host for this intergalactic kegger, second technician, Fozzer Forrester. And joining me in the orange beacon of broadcasting this show, the head of station operations, Commander John Stabler. Good evening. And he's been granted a three-hour window from the recording studio to join us, Head of Station Entertainment's Commander Thane, otherwise known as Chris Jarvis. Hello. Hello. No Alan for this episode. He's currently off dealing with uh, a trade dispute with a delegation from the PRISM system. And no super sub either. We took pity on Grant this week because he is currently in the process of moving house. Uh, Knowing how stressful that can be, we decided to give him a bye for this show. But we hope it all goes well for the move. So... Busy week this week. We're going to cover the Alpha 3.2 with a fine-tooth coat. We have the topic of wingmen to discuss from the DDF. Uh, Oculus Rift being bought by Facebook in the news. Uh, David Braben flying the flag at a number of media events. Listen to questions. Community Corner. Lave Con. And on and on. So let's get started and find out what the guys have been up to. John, what have you been up to this week? Um, oh, crap. Nothing. But just work. Oh, that sounds really boring. Oh, my life sucks. <laughs> How about uh, talking about what you did last week? Maybe you know, maybe the BAFTAs event that you attended. Oh, thanks. Thanks for reminding me of these things, Voss. So, not this week, but the week before, I was at uh, the BAFTAs. Well, not at the awards ceremony, but the uh, inside gaming event beforehand. That was good fun. It was nice to catch up with you guys. Uh, and also to meet uh, the man himself, David Braben. Um, and connect, you know, see some Frontier staff, you know, running a little stall, you know, selling their wares i thought it was great uh mr jarvis what have you been up to um so yeah mostly in terms of stuff i've been doing i've been mostly working and working on the the elite audiobooks uh so where i am at the moment i'm basically doing a uh, a voice only edit of uh drew's audiobook and what that largely involves is taking out things like intakes of breath which show up on the microphone taking out bad takes uh, and deleting all the bits where we, you know, stop and have a conversation for ten minutes. Um, so it's just it's a very it's just a very uh, laborious process of going through the recording and just taking out anything that isn't actually a clean reading of the novel. Um, and then once that's done, it'll be a case of going back in and layering in the the sound effects and music. But it is an unabridged reading of the novel, so it is a very very long recording. Cool. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly the, what have I been up to? Uh, the Kate Russell interview, Mostly Harmless, uh, that went out last week. That was really good to get out. Uh, I think she's done a, a fantastic reading of the first chapter of her book. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to go and check it out, do so because it's a really good teaser. Uh, she's now flown off to, uh, to sunny Australia. Uh, to get over <laughs> a year's worth of writing it. Um, and then, yeah, obviously the BAFTAs. So, I mean, crikey, what a day. I mean, beside the, besides the, the, the stink, the twitching moment of getting to interview one of your, you know, your lifelong heroes, um, we saw, what else did we see? We saw the latest alpha before it was released that week. And uh, things like the Zalata station looks absolutely amazing on the big screens that they, uh, they have on display. But uh, I mean, let's set the scene. So we went to the tobacco docks last week uh, which, unless you live in you know, the south part of London, is a hell of a mission to get to. Um, we were greeted by British Airway cabin crew who gave us our passes and our chocolate bath masks. And then we went downstairs in uh, the tobacco docks to what must have been what the old storage cellars. In there, there was various games developers showcasing their latest games. I mean, what did we see? We saw Titanfall, we saw Infamous. Um, it was nice to see that as soon as you came down those stairs, the first thing that you actually saw in the surf- 
the first thing that you actually heard was Elite Dangerous. Considering that uh, last year when we had Laycom, we were asking them about marketing material and promotional material, they didn't have much. Crikey, what a turnaround. A year later, the banner stands, the posters, the artwork, it was just, it was phenomenal, wasn't it? Yeah, as I say, well, worth bearing in mind that, I mean, part of the reason that that eight-foot poster of Zalada Station was so impressive was that that was the first time any of us had seen that image of Zalada Station, because um, obviously Alpha 3 wasn't out. Um, so really, that was our first kind of view of the outside of um, the, the, the sort of, you know, the in-game space station screenshot. Yeah, and I mean, you've got to think that, you know, the, you know, the Coriolis station is you know, it's one of the iconic images from the, you know, the 1984 game. And it was a question, it was always going to be a question of how that was going to survive the facelift into 2014 and whether or not they were going to get the scale right and whether or not it was just going to look like it should, like a modern version of the uh, 84 model. And I think they've done a cracking job with that. I really, really like it. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting as well, the, 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 the content that Frontier had there for the day, because obviously they, you know, they had game machines set up for visitors to come in and play the alpha. And obviously, you know, and as, and as David Braven said in um, his talk, you know, it's the first time effectively they've shown Elite Dangerous to the public, because really the alpha is, you know, even though they are members of the public and not, not employees of Frontier, it is a closed group. Whereas this mm. is really the first time anyone's been able to walk in off the street and just see Elite Dangerous kind of in its current state. And that, you know, it's worth it. You can't underestimate that. It, that is a huge thing. Uh, and it's a huge thing for Frontier. And it's a great, it's, you know, it's a great showing for the game. And actually, the, the Alpha was extremely well behaved, I think, for the game. Um, <laughs> there were very few instances of it um, trying to send error reports or, or anything like that. But, um, no, it was great, and I think it was. I mean, we're going to get into obviously Oculus Rift later, but I think it was a good, a good showing for Oculus Rift as well, and a good showing for Elite Dangerous on Oculus Rift because there was obviously the chance to, to, to queue for it and have a try. And I think it was great. And I think the other thing that was nice about the Alpha event is, I mean, I've obviously been to, you know, in previous in a previous life, um, I've been to a couple of games expo things, like sort of E3 and that sort of thing, and it was a kind of it was quite nice. It was a public event because it had that kind of vibe of an E3-like event. If you, if you were to take like 1% of E3 and put it in a really small room, that's kind of what the BAFTA showcase was. Um, well, I have to say as well though in that case, they also have the, you know, the right aroma for one of those events, because that's the first time I've been to one of those events. And uh, yeah, I mean, you talk about the stereotypical gamer, but there was definitely a, <clears throat> a certain aroma that sort of lingered around that place by the end of the day. Well, you had the disadvantage of a very low ceiling. Whereas most big games <laughs> events take place in a warehouse that's like, you know, 40 foot to the ceiling. So most of those smells normally go up into the ceiling space and um, <laughs> the air conditioning. Um, so I think that was, that was pretty unique to that event. That's probably what we'll have at LaveCon. <laughs> oh, nice. Not to put anybody off LaveCon 2014. I can promise you we'll have nice high ceilings. We've been to the venue there. The ceilings are fine. Don't worry about it. Um, but just focusing in for a second on Oculus Rift. Obviously, we'll talk about the fact that uh, the news today has been that Oculus Rift has been bought by Facebook and we'll uh, have a little chat about the connotations of that but you said that it was a good showing uh, for Oculus Rift and Elite Dangerous whereas personally I thought it was the opposite um, uh, well I can't really answer your question without hearing what your negative thoughts were about it well, okay so I've used the Oculus Rift before we were very fortunate at, uh, at John Virgo Crash from uh, Crash TV 
um, was able to bring one to, to the Elite Meet event that we had in Manchester last year. And the nice thing about having John there was he was able to actually sort of focus the um, the headset and the different lenses and stuff that you can use to uh, sort of combat different sort of short-sightedness or long-sightedness. And obviously the cue that we had for Oculus Rift with the Frontier Stand, it really wasn't possible for them to do that. So when I was using it for Elite Dangerous, I hadn't actually anticipated that the resolution was going to be quite so low. When we had, saw it in Elite Meet, a lot of the uh, the games were sort of of a low resolution anyway, so the resolution didn't matter. Whereas in a game like Elite Dangerous, when you're used to seeing it on the, the, sort of the crisp monitors at home, we plunged into a very, very low res, slightly laggy sort of universe. I actually found it uh, more vomit-inducing than uh, than the stuff that we actually did at Elite Meet, and that's quite strange because at Elite Meet, the reason it was nausea-inducing was because of the movement aspect, which obviously if you're sat in a cockpit like you are for Elite Dangerous, that shouldn't really be an issue. But I think it was just the you know, the low-quality aspect of the uh, the resolution that really made it quite sort of nausea-inducing. But on the flip side of that, it did mean that I wanted to take the headset off as quickly as possible, which meant I, uh, I won the award for the fastest kill in the scenario of the day. So... Something like a little bit of incentive. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't have a point of comparison for it. And perhaps with my, you know, super, my, my superior evolution to you, Chris, and my 2020 vision, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't have any problems with the headset in terms of my eyes. I just, you know, I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like my first experience with the the 3DS when that came out. It was one of those things where everyone was talking about this, you know, glasses-free 3D display. And until you actually picked it up and looked at it, it was hard to imagine how it would work or what it would look like. And it was similar with the Oculus Rift. You know, I couldn't imagine what having this thing in my head and being surrounded by a computer generated image that I could turn my head all around and look at would be like and you know and I, I appreciate that the, the resolution is an issue one of the challenges of playing Elite with the current Oculus Rift you know kit is the text is largely unreadable and it's very hard I think to in the midst of a dogfight to kind of keep track on your own shields and the enemy shields because of those resolution issues but I think in terms of the immersion of having this kind of world around you and the fact that you can kind of look around in it. I think that sense of kind of being surrounded overrides any of those technical considerations. Um, for me, personally, I just think it was... And, and, and to be fair, I wouldn't buy an Oculus Rift in that state that it currently is, but I yeah. can see that it's something that once the resolution is sorted... And like you say, I mean, the motion... I didn't find the motion a problem, but I think given that I'm the only person I know who's got seasick floating in a quarry which has absolutely no current um, you know again I would wait for the version that has the superior motion tracking but but I just yeah I, I just think in terms of the experience of being immersed in Oculus Rift that was a big factor and I think if you couldn't quite picture what it was like it was an excellent introduction yeah absolutely and yeah, there certainly were elements that were, were jaw dropping even at that low quality uh, you got a fantastic moment where you know you're obviously dog fighting another sidewinder and when it flew over your head you know, the ability to literally just sort of crane your neck back and follow it all the way back as it flew over you watching it through the top of the cockpit was uh, an amazing experience and also being able to uh, to actually turn around in your seat whilst you're wearing the headset and see the back door of the uh, of the sidewinder something we haven't really had a chance to look at but you could actually look around the seat that you were sitting in in game and look at the doorway to uh, to walk back out into the rest of the ship uh, which I mean it's great that they've you know we know that Frontier Development had you know had modeled that um, but it was really nice to actually get to see it you know uh, cool. Okay, well, maybe that's a good point actually to just continue that discussion then and talk a little bit about the news today that Facebook has for $2 billion bought Oculus Rift. John, what's your thoughts on that? 
the initial reaction from people was a little bit overboard because everyone seemed to assume that therefore when they bought their Oculus Rift it's going to be painted blue with a big <laughs> thumbs up on the front of it and and that um, you know they're going to be playing Elite Dangerous and then their anti Ethel is going to their status is going to pop up in the middle of it and I was thinking where are these people getting all this stuff from because they haven't said they're going to do that and not only that but it's not like Mark Zuckerberg has decided that he's just going to take over and you know all of a sudden he's you know the VR man now and he's going to chop and change everything it's still the same team developing it it's still the same people who are responsible and it's their vision going forward so I I thought there was a lot of weird behavior from people who obviously don't like Facebook I mean I'm not a massive fan of Facebook I don't particularly rate it as a web application myself but um, you know I'm not going to judge an entire team of people or you know an entire company based on a product especially given you know especially some of the things that have been said about them you know I mean there's there's been some pretty harsh words said about Facebook and they've amounted to personal attacks I think and that's something that doesn't really interest me personally I, I think that they're better off with someone like Facebook than like a more hardware focused company who would probably want to drive it more themselves so I think that I'm sure that someone could think of a better company that could have bought them out but then again I can think of a lot worse so I I think we'll just have to judge Facebook on on, you know what actually happens with the Oculus Rift the only thing I can say is 400 million dollars it's probably going to go a long way to helping make sure that we do actually see a consumer model yeah no absolutely and I mean Facebook has said that you know the, the two companies will remain separate and Oculus Rift will continue acting as its own independent company and yeah the focus certainly for the headset at the moment is the gaming side of it and then they're going to branch out and look at um, you know experiences now Jarvis you're the you're the man about experiences that sounds really dodgy but anyway we'll crash on um, <laughs> what do you think yeah the Oculus Rift and Facebook is going to mean for you know creating these sort of immersive experiences I don't know I mean I think it'd be interesting I mean looking at the way certainly the article was reported it was interesting that like John says there was a lot of stuff that was kind of misquoted very quickly and in the original article that actually talked about the the, the sort of transaction. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was quoted as, as saying about, you know, things like being able to have a face-to-face conversation with somebody in virtual reality or to consult an online doctor. And the thing that it kind of reminded me of most is, I wonder if Oculus Rift will create something like a second generation, second life. Because second life was this idea that you had this kind of virtual social space that you could kind of move around in 3D. And it's kind of, you know, I think it was a really early experiment and there's obviously lots of interesting stuff that's happened in second life. But I think if you could take that and expand it, if you effectively were to strip away the text interface of Facebook and replace it with a virtual environment that you go in and move around, would you not end up with something that is analogous to Second Life, where you've got services that you can go and get advice and pay for, or you can go and there'll be like a, you know, like a movie auditorium that you can walk into and sit down and you, you pay your credit card f- to watch the movie and you feel like you're kind of, you know, sitting in a cinema, you know, watching the film. I mean, it's those kinds of things that I think maybe they're getting at with the idea that somehow the Oculus Rift headset could be perceived as a social platform. Because I think actually, I mean, that's where someone like Zuckerberg clearly is very successful, um, is his ability to kind of think about things in a way that maybe people haven't occurred to them. And I don't think most people would look at a headset and say, hey, this is going to be a great social platform. But I think having that idea of a kind of, if I were to be cynical, 3D chat room, that is something that potentially, you know, is a good application of the technology. 
it'll be interesting to see where it all pans out. But I think at the moment, obviously, it's just the first day it's been announced. So it's a question of just sort of watch this space for the time being. But in regards to Elite Dangerous, I can't see anything changing between now and the launch of the game. Hopefully, we'll have the uh, Crystal Cove out by that point, And hopefully, we'll actually be able to play Elite Dangerous on launch with either Crystal Cove or with the you know, consumer release. The negativity around Oculus Rift comes from two directions. One is that, rightly or wrongly, you know, some people have a, a very negative view of Facebook, and particularly the way Facebook changes functionality over time. I think certainly people who've been on Facebook since the beginning now feel that it's actually much harder now to keep up with what their friends are doing, whereas now Facebook has this thing where it decides what, what you get to see and what you don't. I think from a game development point of view, there are some worrying trends, and there's some worrying stuff that's been said by a few independent developers, certainly some who've tried to develop games applications for Facebook previously and been treated very badly. And I think there is a danger that if, if Oculus Rift ends up later down the line becoming this closed platform that has to go through Facebook certification, that would be very negative. But like John says, you know, we don't have any indication that's going to happen. And from the point of view of Elite Frontier are very sensible guys. Oculus Rift will be there as a platform if it is worth their time and their money to support it and it adds value to the game they'll support it if it becomes this onerous thing where they have to answer to a third party to get it published and it becomes a negative experience for users they won't implement it and I think that's I think we can trust Frontier to continue making good decisions about the development of, of Elite Dangerous yeah agree with that completely. Well, let's go crashing on there and talk about the development of Elite Dangerous and talk about Alpha 3.2. It was released last Friday after the BAFTAs. It introduced the first uh, viewing of the Coriolis Space Station. And basically, it was the first um, time we've actually had a game loop within the Alpha. So a game loop, basically, you can go out and launch these various scenarios. You can earn a bit of cash, come back to the station, repair your ship, buy better weapons, launch again, go back to the scenarios and rinse and repeat. So there is actually now a game loop within the Alpha. Uh, John, how have you been finding it? Absolutely shocking. <laughs> terrible. Uh, when they first released uh, Alpha 3, there was... Uh, I, I was having terrible network problems. Not that... I mean, I could connect initially, but all of a sudden when I tried to launch into the game or when I was trying to switch between instances, I was getting ridiculous amounts of server traffic that not only stopped the game from working, but effectively flooded my home network, which, you know, kicked my wife off Netflix, and obviously that made my <laughs> life difficult. <laughs> And since then, we've had we had 3.1. You know, Frontier realised very quickly that there wasn't going to be much alpha testing done with you know the, the, the scale of the problems that people were experiencing. So they pretty much within the same week released 3.1, which was meant to address some issues of stability. Um, I didn't see a lot of difference with that. And then again, not shortly after, there was 3.2, which. I think has improved some of the issues that I thought were in Alpha 2, which was matchmaking and actually seeing other people. Now, if I if I play the Alpha, you know, I'll go into an instance and no matter what my experience is like, I, I can tell you now I'm seeing all sorts of people in there, which is which is good. But I'm still getting, you know, a flooding of my network. I've had to implement traffic shaping on my network so I don't annoy the wife but i'm getting a lot of crashes to desktop and stuff and to be honest i've kind of put it on hold i mean they've got they've got plenty of crash reports for me to be getting on with and hopefully if they release an update at some point i will give it another try yeah, absolutely, and I think you know, that's a similar experience to uh, to most people out there. Certainly when they released, it was quite frustrating when they first released 
the uh, Alpha 3, 90% of people couldn't actually get in there. All you could see was the loading screen. Uh, and that went on for the first weekend. Alpha 3.1 was launched on Monday, which we saw a little bit less of the loading screen, but not really enough to make it playable. And then Alpha 3.2 came out, and I think has pretty much uh, solved the spinning Sidewinder and Cobra problem. Everybody can now get into the game, but yeah, we've seen a lot more sort of crashes the desktop, uh, which, I mean, let's be fair, this is an alpha process, so Frontier Development need us to go crashing to desktop so they can get the, the crash reports back and, you know, and fix the issues and, and make the game more stable. It might not be as much fun as it, as it was when it was all nice and stable, but yeah, ultimately this is what we signed up for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, serious thing for me. I mean, I, I wasn't really even able to get into Alpha. I think I got, I think the first Alpha, I think I managed to get in once, but really it wasn't until 3.1 that I was actually able to sort of get in and look at it. I think the thing that I find interesting about it is that it's it's still obviously a very early part of the game, and really what they've done with the, the station is effectively what you had previously was a multiplayer lobby where you could choose one of four scenarios. What you've got now is the, the space station is effectively a hub from which you can hyperspace to three other locations. But really all that space station is, is a 3D lobby because what you're doing is you're jumping from there into the missions that are largely the same as they were in Alpha 2. So I think it's because there's been people that have been talking about there was, there was some comment somewhere about whether to you know whether Alpha 3.2 will be the demo of Elite Dangerous uh, and it isn't because when you jump into those systems you're still in a very defined multiplayer small sandbox you're not jumping into an actual system that you can travel around and explore and I think that free open world is going to be such a huge part of Elite Dangerous that I don't really think I still I still think it's far too early to say that the gameplay that's in the alpha is anything like representative of what the finished game is going to be like but it certainly was interesting to to, to do the space station docking and one of the things I wanted to pick up from our stuff with David Braben from the, uh, the BAFTA event once I played the alpha 3 I was surprised that David Braben said that he thought the landing was still too difficult. Yeah. Because I don't know about you guys, but I find the docking to be trivial. <laughs> I mean, it really is, you know, if you remember how difficult docking in Elite was and, and, in, and in Frontier, I really have found that, that certainly the Sidewinder, I know that people have said with the larger ships it'll be more problematic, but certainly in the Sidewinder, I've found that heading for that letterbox on the front of the station, I haven't needed to break. I haven't even really needed to match rotation. You can pretty much just aim at the hole and hit the afterburner and you'll be fine. I don't know, maybe, there's, maybe that's just me. I don't know if other people have had problems getting in there. Um, and maybe David was talking about the, the actual landing on the pad. But again, really, as long as you've got your thrust up and down keys bound to something sensible, it's really not difficult. The only thing I've found difficult is one of the major bugs that I have for 3.1 and 3.2 is that um, you get assigned a landing pad and then when you are literally <laughs> five or six feet from the ground, it rescinds your permission to land. And the problem is when it rescinds your permission to land, it also rescinds flight control. So suddenly you start moving sideways relative to the space station. <laughs> so so that's, that's difficult, but that's not really a flight issue. That's, a, that's an in-game bug issue. Yeah, it? absolutely. And it's, it's something that uh, they did say has been ironed out in 3.2. Uh, it hasn't really. There's still some occasions where you'll get the, uh, the last-minute reassignment of your docking bay, which, as you say, can be uh, <laughs> a bit yeah. problematic. But at there, the same there, there time... There is an issue I wanted to raise, though. There is an issue I wanted to raise. And I know that, obviously, it is an alpha... And it's still a very rough version but i want to play devil's advocate for a minute one of the things we've seen with the alpha alpha one was very slick 
as a single player shooter experience you know it was it was an incredibly robust and polished experience alpha 2 added multiplayer and we started seeing a lot of problems zombie ships disconnect those sorts of things you know alpha 3 major connection problems players dropping in and out the entire space station vanishing from view for large periods of time now one of the things that occurs to me um, is that the more multiplayer stuff they've implemented the worse the alpha has got and it set my mind thinking and this is me you know playing devil's advocate for a moment if you're listening frontier still love you to pieces but I'm not clear on what Frontier's track record is with producing multiplayer games and netcode. I mean, they've said they are, they are justifiably proud in their in-game engine, which they can use for all sorts of things and is very adaptable. But I'm not aware of what other games Frontier have made that have required really heavy netcode. And in all of the discussions that they've had, you know, in talking about the game up to this point, a lot of the actual stuff about networking has been quite high-level discussions. And we haven't seen any kind of nuts and bolts networking talk in the same way we have with, like, meet the teams with graphics and sound and gameplay flight model programming and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe this particular area, the, the multiplayer netcode, you know, is that starting to show maybe a bit of an area of weakness for Frontier? You know, is this not, is this not an area they're used to excelling in in the same way that they are in the other departments? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, quite possibly, but at the same time, I mean, you, you, by the sheer number of people you're inviting into the system, you're going to increase the number of problems that you've got. I mean, we don't actually have a number for how many alpha players they've got, but you can imagine it all works swimmingly on the number of PCs they've got within the, yeah, within the actual studio and maybe with the people they've got over in Canada and maybe when they go home, then, you know, before it's released to the general public, it's, you know, it's all working fine. The moment you switch that switch and you send it out to the alphas, you are increasing the amount of people hitting your network by yeah, a magnitude, probably you know, 10 if not 100 fold what you've already tested it on. So maybe it's just a simple point of they just can't predict how that net code is going to react when it's released in the wild. And I think, and don't get me wrong, I think they will fix it. And I don't think you will see them releasing an Elite Dangerous product that does not have flawless netcode in it but it, yeah. just, it makes me wonder how long it is going to take them to get to the level of quality with the netcode that will be required to actually get the game out you know even to gamma level yeah, I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely a question. I mean, you've just got to take into consideration, though, if you think about all the different uh, system setups and, you know, different routers and configurations of all the different PCs of people belonging to the Alpha, it's no wonder, really, that uh, <laughs> when they release it first time, it, it falls down. Yeah, you know, I'm amazed, actually, at how quickly they can get updates yeah, and revisions to the Alpha out to, uh, to the Alpha backers in order to fix some of these things. Not always perfect, but at least we're not waiting, like, weeks and weeks and weeks on end um, to be able to get back into it. What about the actual experience of the Alpha, then? I mean, take all the bugs out. For those occasions where you've actually had a a flawless playtest of you know going into the station, doing some outfitting, launching again, going to a scenario, playing in the scenario, maybe coming back to the station, has that been a good experience? Has it been sort of a least experience that you wanted to have? Yeah, it's quite hard for me to answer that because you know I've only managed to upgrade a single gun on my ship. Uh, everyone else seems to be flying around in Cobras now. Um, I, I haven't really moved. Docking has been so problematic that I've just quit in frustration. Okay, and I'm guessing you're probably the same, Chris, eh? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I haven't managed to play it for that long and consistent a time. I, I like John. I've managed to amass enough 
crash to actually upgrade a bit of a weapon. But having said that, you know, I really enjoyed the process of, you know, like you say, that basic game loop of jumping from the station into an area, earning a bit of cash, heading back. I think the thing that it's really highlighted, actually, much more than the, the Alpha 2, is that actually the, the, suddenly the credits and ethics scenario actually in this instance becomes very difficult because you have to go through such an extended amount of gameplay before you can upgrade your equipment, you don't have access to that cargo scanner, which is required to really make credits and ethics work. You know, certainly if you want to police the, the system and shoot down other players that have bounties on them, that's absolutely fine. But what I'm finding is that people aren't generating bounties because no one has the equipment to actually scan those ships and work out how much cargo they're carrying. Um, so it suddenly occurs to me that actually far from starting out as a pirate and raiding ships for cargo being a kind of entry-level career, it actually, you know, you're going to have to earn a bit of money before you can even have the kit on your ship to do even the most basic piracy. The one thing I'll say about ethics and credits, and I don't know whether this is a balance issue, but at the moment, there, there doesn't seem to be anyone wanting to be a pirate whenever I go on. It's just all the players in there are goody two-shoes. They're just sat around scanning each other, waiting for someone to commit a crime before they, you know, and ultimately, if nobody's there committing any crimes, that you know, it's, nothing's happening in that instance in, in terms of what it's meant to be about. So I find that if you are a single player who decides to go and scoop a can or you know attack an npc or something instantly you get pounced upon by you know 10 other players because they're all after you know this the one piece of meat (laughs) so i think that there is there's a balancing issue because it it would appear that there's not enough incentive to be a criminal at the moment in ethics and credits and and that's something i guess that you know i've been asking questions about on the forums in general that i think they need to be careful when balancing that obviously being a criminal is a viable career path for players yeah uh, i think that might be more indicative actually of the fact that you haven't had stable alpha for a while since people have jumped into ethics and credits and cobras it's a lot easier to take down the anacondas so people are actually realizing that the the bounty that they get on them for taking down an anaconda is much less than the the cargo contents of, uh, of one of those ships so in a cobra there's much less risk so we're seeing a few more pirates in ethics and credits now and actually a few groups of pirates where you know people are going in cobras and basically taking out the anacondas and letting people in sidewinders scoop up the cargo yeah that certainly was the case a couple of, you know a few days ago but now it's a little bit more stable you're seeing a few more cobra pirates in there john chris no, I was just going to say the problem really is one of is one of economics. I mean, if you're getting a 400 credit bounty on your head for the sake of scooping 200 credits worth of barrels, it's not worth your time, is it? No, exactly. I was going to say, what about the, the different shippers? But I'm guessing you guys have only seen the Cobras and YouTube and stuff. So probably for me to say that the, the Cobra Mark III is a lovely, lovely ship to fly. And I think once we get Alpha 3.3, which probably be a bit more stable for you guys, you'll get in one in no time. And... Yeah, it is lovely. It really is uh, a great ship. Although I have to say, um, I did find one of the uh, one of the reported bugs, which is if you fly in a straight line out of the station for a prolonged period of time, uh, you uh, crash into an invisible wall. Now, I think that's only ever been found because people in Cobras are looking around the cockpit and looking at all the dashboard and stuff and uh, doing exactly the same as I did. And 
spending the first couple of minutes just looking at their ship before they know what's happening. They've crashed into this invisible wall. But yeah, I mean, obviously the interesting thing for those people who haven't seen it is that the Cobra's got two seats in it. So you take up the left-hand side one, but there is one on the right-hand side that Frontier are being a little bit coy about as to what's going to happen, whether or not you're going to get one of those inflatable autopilots that we saw in Airplane, um, or whether or not you're actually going to be able to get uh, you know wingmen and stuff to, to sit next to you and, and to control the guns and stuff. I'm not sure yet. Any ideas, guys? Well, if they do have that inflatable um, co-pilot, I hope it doesn't become part of the damage system. So, you know, you'll get a puncture in it and you'll have to kind of blow it up and smell like that. It's interesting, though, because um, it is a change from earlier games because the, the Cobra was, you know, previously a single-pilot vessel. Um, mm. Obviously, it, it still can be, um, but the idea that you might actually be able to have crew in a Cobra is, is, is an interesting thing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just hypothesizing, what would you like those uh, co-pilots to actually be able to do? I mean, would you want them to control the guns or what you know, What function would they serve? In-flight lap nounces. <laughs> Surely no, only um, one seat for that. <laughs> well, no, they've got to have a rest. I mean, you know, working time regulations still apply to lap dancers. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, and this is the interesting thing. I mean... Because obviously our experience is really only of kind of previous Elite and Frontier games. The only thing I can think of is that using a rear-facing laser in Frontier was always really awkward. So if you could have somebody mm. else use your rear-facing laser, uh, that's kind of a boring job for somebody to do. And of course it raises the, the question again about as to whether this is an AI you know, character um, or whether you could actually have a second player co-oping in your ship and doing stuff with you. Uh, and again, it raises the question of what they would do and how interesting that would be for them. Because actually, sorry, uh, to go for, to, to, for those people who have come onto the Lave Radio podcast in recent episodes and, and didn't hear the, the endless conversations we had on this topic in the first sort of, you know, five <laughs> or six episodes, um, there is obviously an issue with, you know, that people come in and they, they want kind of co-op play in, in Elite Dangerous or, or they think they want co-op play in Elite Dangerous, um, whereby rather than flying together in separate ships, you could actually be on somebody else's ship and you could man the guns or you could fulfill some sort of crew position. But the interesting thing is, you know, how, how interesting are those co-op roles if somebody else is actually flying the ship and Elite Dangerous is largely a game about flying ships, what other roles are there that you can take on somebody else's vessel which actually still results in interesting gameplay? So other than, you know, shouting when something appears on the scanner uh, or active, you know, or controlling the old turret cannon, it's hard to imagine really what a, what a human crew would actually get out of the game. Okay, so let's leave the topic of, uh, of crew there and move on to uh, a similar topic with that of wingmen, which is the current DDS topic this week. Uh, John, I believe you've been looking through this. Basically, uh, it allows uh, players to hire AI companions who can either act as, you know, defenders for the player if they need to go somewhere tricky, or they can actually, you know, help in attack if they need to go and complete some kind of a combat mission or something like that. I think a player can hire up to two AI wingmen who will kind of follow you for a set amount of time, depending on, you know, how much money exchanges hands. You'll find them on the bulletin board, and I suppose, like, with with any other thing on the bulletin board, how much you pay them will probably be a, a major factor in how loyal they're going to be and how effective they're going to be. And also, the wingmen are going to be affected by the player's criminal status as well, so that if you're a goody-two-shoes, they're probably going to be quite trusting of you, whereas if you're a 
uh, a criminal, uh, as Frontier have phrased it. There's no honor between thieves, and so the, the only people who are going to work with you because you're a criminal is you know other criminals. So you're going to have a chance of a double cross there, or they're just going to just try and take you out completely. As I said, that you know the contract is you know either fixed length or you know potentially it could be for the length of you know a mission. So that as soon as you you know get where you're going, that will obviously end the contract with them. And so they're going to have basic behaviours, and at the moment they're quite simple in terms of what the behaviour is. I mean, they'll retaliate against uh, people who attack you, uh, or if you start attacking someone, I mean, obviously they're going to become your enemy so they can go and jump in. But they will have their own kind of factional allegiances, so I guess that it's possible that if you went and attacked you know, somebody that they're sympathetic to, that, again, that might be a motivation for them to turn against you. Just looking through it, mate, is there any indication of whether or not we'll actually be able to issue commands to the wingmen? Well, I think this is something that's that's popped up and people have been quite keen to be able to actually direct their wingmen. Um, but again, I think the, the developers have come back and they've said, well, you know, that sounds, you know, you're starting to get into the realms of a, you know, a management game there. And, and so they, they want the AI to be autonomous and to react you know, to you and, and not be, you know, because if you are going to give them orders, you're only going to be able to give them something really simple, like, you know, attack this target or something like that. And I can understand that they then might not be attracted to that kind of interface. So at the, m- the moment, I think the answer is a no on that. They feel that they, they'd, be, they'd be better off replicating some intelligent behaviors, depending on what you as a pilot do. I mean, yeah, I can see where they're coming from from that, but if you think about your Wing Commander games and you know, your Free Space games, it didn't take much to press C for command and then select your wingmen and then say, attack my target or defend me or you know, escort my target. You know, it was just a few key presses. So, yeah, I didn't think it was, uh, it was too difficult to implement, really. No, but I think that, that in some ways that goes like in the opposite direction because it kind of robs them of... If they're going to be- obey you every time, you know, even if the situation's hopeless, that to me that doesn't seem right either. So I don't know if there could be something in the middle they can have, you know, just this idea that you can point at a target and they're going to go to it and in an unthinking way. I don't see how that makes, you know, maybe it's just my point of view. I don't see that how how that makes it a better experience. I mean, I would rather have some, you know, really intelligent AI by my side so that, you know, I just need to focus on whatever the goal is. There's only two of them anyway. So, I mean, I mean, if there was a whole fleet of them with you, then, of course, you could make a better case for having some kind of a command structure. But when there's only two of them, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's a bit more difficult. So, as I said, there's a maximum of two wingmen per player. Um, which could be quite interesting because given that um, uh, they talked about this, you know, theoretical maximum and, and the number that was thrown around was 32. So now that you've, you've got this exponential, you know, if all players are, are running around with, you know, a couple of wingmen, all of a sudden that increases the number of people in a battle to 96, which um, is pretty epic, I guess. But yeah, so the, the people, unfortunately, well, the looks of it, you're not going to be able to hire um, some wingmen who are flying around in, you know, an anaconda that's armed to the teeth. You know, you are looking at, you know, some of the, the smaller ships, you know, the Sidewinders, Eagles, something that's, you know, a bit more, you know, Cobras, Vipers, something that's a bit more manageable, I guess. Um, and again, you know, what ships they have is, is going to be reflected in the price uh, and obviously their skill level. Yeah, no, I think the only thing to add to that is just the, uh, the 
the reputation aspect. So uh, in terms of what ships they'll fly, you know, if you have a low faction reputation, you'll get access to women that are flying, you know, your sidewinders, your eagles, adders. Uh, and they'll only have sort of basic basic weapons and loadouts. If you have a high faction reputation, you'll get access to women who will have more powerful ships such as Cobras, Vipers, and uh, further lancers with decent weapons and loadouts. So another reason to sort of grind your faction reputation. But uh, speaking about eagles, that probably takes us nicely into this week's peak of the week, which it's a look at the uh, the latest imagery on the eagle, which has changed slightly since we first saw it at the concept stage. What do you reckon, guys? Do you like the uh, the new angular look of the eagle? Uh, yeah, no, no, I like it. Uh, I like the art style for it. It kind of reminds me a bit of um, oh, reminds me a bit of the old sort of mech warrior style artwork. Obviously, you know, slightly different thing for <laughs> spaceships rather than robots. But I don't know, just something about the kind of military colouring and panelling and uh, something about the way the cockpit looks. Now, now I see it, you know, this way just, just kind of puts me in mind of those things. But yeah, I think it looks good. I think it looks like a, a, a real threat. Yeah, looking forward to seeing it in game, really. I think this is going to be a, a bit of a favourite nippy little fighter. Yeah, well, looking at it, I actually thought Halo when I first saw it. It looked a, a little bit like Master Chief's helmet now. I have no comments made. <laughs> uh, the only thing I was going to say is that um, there was comments made, and Michael Brooks made it clear that this is now a federal ship mm. uh, once more, uh, because as he was keen to point out, and I'm sure Alan has mentioned it before, that this was a federal ship originally in the Mark One, and then there was the dodgy Mark Two, and then the Imperials did a Mark Three, which we enjoyed it back in Frontier. Um, but this is now again a federal ship, so sorry to all those Imperial people out there who are looking forward to, you know, staying true to the cause and flying one of them. It looks like, um, you know, you won't be able to. Okay, so before we leave the uh, Development Digest for this week, it's probably a nice point to pick up on one of the developers themselves. We've had a new Meet the Team, and one that's actually been quite eagerly anticipated, this one with uh, Sandy Samarco, one of the senior designers. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that uh, uh, Sandy hasn't exactly had the stereotypical uh, background in uh, getting into the, the games industry. I think he's worked in quite a few different industries and then sort of uh, decided to come to it quite late. But uh, some of the interesting things from uh, from Sandy's interview, certainly the one about missions, uh, made my ears prick up. John? Yeah, one of the interesting things that he went straight to when asked, you know, what was he most excited about was the, the missions and the event system. Uh, and this is something that's kind of gone off the radar since, you know, we discussed it from the DDF, you know, months, it seems like months and months ago. But he's basically, you know, alluded to the complexity of it and how that, you know, if they can get this right, that, you know, there's going to be no shortage of things for players to do, um, which I think is really important when it comes to, you know, having this vast galaxy, you know, that you, you don't want players getting bored um, it, it may be quite easy for you to, you know, fly along for a while and then all of a sudden realise there's nothing much to do. And so, you know, he described basically how there's going to be sequences, you know, the equivalent of quest chains from, you know, the role-playing games um, that you can get into and you can get carried away with that. Um, and, and I really hope that they're working on, you know, making that like a compelling experience. But also, you know, he said that what they really want to make players feel is that, you know, anything is possible. Anything, anything can happen within, and as he said, anything can happen within the next half hour. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a couple of other points that uh, came out of the interview. I think one of the, one of the nice questions was uh, 
from uh, MJT168 from Twitter. He said, can you ask Sandy what in game development terms keeping him awake at night? And his reply was just basically the sheer scale of the project and the weight of expectations unlike anything I've ever experienced before. I guess sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between spine-tingling excitement and spine-liquefying fear. Now, there's got to be a huge element of that, surely, for the you know, development guys, because yeah, a lot of them will have gone to work for Frontier themselves basically desperate to make this game there's a lot of pressure from the community obviously if you have anything to do with the ddf i'm sure you can feel the uh, yeah the amount of passion that the community has about this game and the level of expectations i would imagine there will probably be some sleepless nights as to you know, the developers thinking to themselves jesus we really can't f this up I mean, I think it's it's a thing that happens really when you when you're involved in any creative project. I mean, I certainly had it. Um, I'm sure if Alan was here, you know, he'd agree with me. Um, that there's an element where you know before you start a creative project or when you're at the planning stage, you have this kind of idea in your head of what the thing is going to be like, and you want to create this this, this kind of perfect flawless thing and then when you actually come to start putting it together so with writing once you actually start putting the, the, the words on the page or or, or, or you know or, or painting the picture or whatever it is you're doing but there's an element where actually seeing it kind of come together in real life you're aware of all the things that don't match up to the perfect version of it that exists in your head. So it must be really hard putting something like Elite Dangerous together because you have this, you know, everyone can conceptualize in, in a sort of very broad, ephemeral way, this massive open universe where you can fly anywhere, do anything, pick up missions at the drop of a hat, talk to NPCs, talk to other players. And as soon as you actually then have to build it, there's these kind of concessions to reality that sort of end up getting in your way and you sort of start I don't know you have to I think you, there's a there's a point in any creative project where you have to really press on and work very hard to keep aiming for that perfect vision of the project that's in your head because it's very easy to just de-scope and say well I've you know it was it was this way when I imagined it but now it's down on paper it's kind of worked out like this you actually have to fight quite hard to resist those kind of outcomes and to keep scrapping something you've done which isn't perfect in favour of implementing something else which is better and closer to your kind of true vision. Yeah, and I suppose that maybe ties in with the another question this one came in from Whitner about uh, how useful the design decision form has been uh, to Sandy and the team. Because uh, obviously we know it's required a lot of hard work from Frontier's part and yeah, the question was basically, you know, was it worth it? And Sandy says, yeah, there's no doubt that the DBAC has been and continues to be a very useful tool. It forces the team design to justify our decisions and provide some great ideas to boot. And he says that basically nothing goes through the DDF without being yeah, without being changed or providing some sort of insight that they hadn't thought about. Even the stuff that goes through pretty much unscathed um, normally provides some points of view which affects how the how the actual item is going to be implemented. So sure, it's time intensive, and it was a pretty scary thing to start with, being a completely alien public experience for us. But on balance, I'd say it's paving its way quite nicely. So thank you very much to all that have contributed. Yeah, I think that leads on to what uh, what you were saying, and also what uh, one of the developers that we met at BAFTA, Chris Gregory, was saying is that you know this is a different way of developing for the you know, for the studio is the fact that normally they get a long way into the process, pretty much all the way through an item. Uh, and then start releasing it. Whereas what Frontier are doing is they're, you know, they're completing a bit. They're releasing it to the public and saying, you know, what do you guys think about that? Fixing that, sorting that, and then moving on to the next bit. And certainly Chris was saying it's actually quite nice to get that sort of instant feedback 
on you know what you've produced so far okay well let's leave that one there and move on to community corner let's start off and talk as we always do with the writers section chris as there's no alan tonight you're gonna have to do both the writers section and the audio side of things so start us off yeah, I, well, I suppose the you know the main thing is the um, in the anthology. Uh, I believe that well, certainly by the time this podcast goes out, <laughs> let's say that uh, all fifteen short stories will have been approved. I should hope so because I'm I'm recording the last five next Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, yeah, so that's a big thing. So the anthology is 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 virtually completed. In terms of the audio stuff, I don't know that there's necessarily a massive update, except that I am just working through it. <laughs> Yeah, what does that actually consist of, though, mate? I mean, obviously, you've got the, the raw footage, you've got everybody's voices that you're taking, you know, the pauses and breathers and stuff out. Have you managed to get the sound uh, library from Frontier Developments yet? Uh, when are you going to be putting that in? And how much of a job is that for the, you know, for the audio projects? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. We, we, I have the sounds from, from Frontier. Um, we do have the sounds from Frontier in the sense that they have sent the sound library to Dan. I don't have the sound library in the sense that I haven't actually yet got around to downloading it off Dan. Um, but we do, you know, we do have those in hand. It, it, it's a difficult one to judge because um, you have to kind of take it on a book-by-book book basis because something like a full-cast audio drama, you can see very clearly for any given scene. You can look at the script and say, well, I'm going to need... A, se- a section of sound effects that does this, this, and this. With with audiobooks, it's a slightly different thing because you almost you don't want the sound effects to become obtrusive over the narrator reading the story. And the other thing is, there's the the, the kind of sense of time in narrated books is slightly different to what it is in drama because drama generally plays out in a very realistic sense of time, whereas in a narrated book, you might have a bomb counting down from ten. And the entire contents of the story is that person's thought processes in those last 10 seconds as they're watching the bomb count down. I'm not spoiling anything. That's not in any of the stories. But my point is, in an audio drama, you'd look at that and you'd say, right, I need a bomb with a 10-second countdown. Whereas, obviously, in a narrated story, you'd blow that 10-second countdown within the first paragraph of the narration. So it's a different kind of, of sound effects production that you do you know, necessarily for, for a narrated book than, than you do for audio drama. And yeah, so what you end up doing is you end up looking at the story and I think you have to make much more of a judgment on a case-by-case basis of, you know, sometimes in the narrative there'll be a description of a sound. And, you know, I'm sure sure I've said this before, you, you then have to make the call of say, well, do I have the narrator say there was a sound of gunfire or do I just put in a sound effect of gunfire? Um, and you have to kind of judge those things on a, you know, really on a sort of story by, well, really on a, on a line-by-line basis. You have to make those kind of calls. That sounds like quite a time-consuming process, mate. Oh, it is. It's massively time-consuming. If I had um, two or three of me, uh, this would be, you know, a really easy task. Um, but, it, yeah, it's just the thing with audio is you have to kind of do it all in, in real time. I mean, there's no... I mean, as you're working, you kind of, you know, if you've been doing audio stuff now, now as much as I have, you do get used to looking at the shape of the waveform and you can make certain judgments based just on visually what you're looking at. But generally speaking, there is a process of listening to a section, applying an effect, listening to it again, seeing if it works, tweaking the levels. So really, you end up listening to the whole thing several times. Mm. And when you consider that my, my, you know, my current estimate for the dry edit of, of Drew's novel um, is something like 12 and a half hours narration, and that's without sound effects and music, you know, that's a massive thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's more than a working day 
just to listen to it from start to finish. So when you're talking about looking at scenes and hearing them multiple times and having to kind of work on it, you know, it is just a, it, it's a, you know, it's a long process. And um, but it's it's necessary for producing the, the the excellent audiobooks that we want to get out. And have you got any idea of time frames in that, mate? I'm sorry, I went temporarily deaf. <laughs> are you still on track for the release dates that you were hoping to hit oh uh, it depends it depends whose dates we were talking about hoping to hit i think it's i mean i've talked to dan about timescales and it was you know it was clear that the, the timescales that were perhaps on the kickstarter were, were were very optimistic for the amount of stuff that we're doing and i mean yeah. bear in mind that when those timescales were set we were only talking about four books and now we're doing five. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, there have to be certain sort of almost hard deadlines uh, in this process. Realistically, I'd say if we if we haven't completely finished everything by the time Fantasticon rolls around, we're going to be massively disappointed, you know, for ourselves as well as for everybody else. And Fantasticon is in uh, August, isn't it? But the last conversation I had with Dan about timescales is, is what we're keen to do for the people who've obviously backed these products and are, and are waiting for them. For Kickstarter backers, we're going to be releasing things as we finish them. So once Drew's book is done, we will make that audiobook available to the people who backed and wanted Drew's audiobook. Um, in the same way, the ebooks. Once the ebooks are done and ready, they will go to the backers. But obviously, the kind of the retail release and the ability for non-backers to just buy these books and buy the audiobooks we will be holding them all off until the whole suite of products is is available. So the box set will be available as a box set, not one book at a time kind of thing. Okay, well, that seems to make perfect sense. We'll leave that there and go on to some community questions. And John, what's the first community question? Okay, so Matthew Johnson asks, Oculus Rift and its future in Elite? Question mark. I think we've discussed the Oculus Rift a lot, and, and I don't know whether he was hinting at the, the Facebook uh, takeover, which... Uh, we've already, oh, sorry, acquisition uh, that we've we've already talked about. So I think we've kind of answered that. But I, I still think that given that the people at uh, Oculus have said that Elite Dangerous is pretty much their number one demo title at the moment, um, I think that it features strongly in in uh, Elite, uh, and especially considering that uh, they've put it in put in the native support at such an early stage of of the development. Yeah, absolutely. And Matthew also has another question, which is the, you know, what's the crew's expectations for Alpha 4? So our expectations for Alpha 4, yeah, I would imagine, as it's called, uh, travel and trade. We should see, you know, obviously the, the frame shift, the hyperspace. We should see a few more Coriolis space stations and the ability to weigh the stock markets between the two, buy and sell, and hopefully trade up to uh, a better you know, a better trading ship. Hopefully we'd see you know, the Anaconda coming into play and being you know, player controlled by that point. Yeah, I think we need to see. I think we need to see in-system flight. I think going back to what I said earlier, I think the the current sort of gameplay area is actually. I think this is where you've got that bug where you can fly out of the space station and hit an invisible wall. Because I think actually what they've done is created a little box of gameplay space. And I'm wondering. I mean, I might be wrong, but I can't, I can't help feeling that to really test the kind of in in-game flight model and the frame shift drive and everyone hyperspacing into a sensible location within a system. I think we need to see a full-sized system at this stage. One of the other things I want, you know, I'd be interested to see is how they're going to implement, you know, jumping around between star systems and how will that reflect on the existing multiplayer scenarios that we have? Because at the moment, you, you, you just select them 
in your ship and you just magically jump there. I, I'm wondering how are those new scenarios? Are they going to remain in it? Are they going to um, still be located in, in the system map or something? Uh, but not just that. If there is going to be some trade runs in there, which I'm really looking forward to. I, I know it sounds sad, but this is possibly you know the, the, the alpha build I'm most excited about. You know, is there going to be opportunities for players to, you know, pirate and rob you on the way on your milk run? I hope so. You know, I, I don't want it just to be them, you know, players testing a spreadsheet. I, I would like to see, you know, it offering other gameplay, you know, scenarios for other players. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, question coming in from Colin Ford. Colin says, I'm not really bothered about an external view, although it would be nice to do for YouTube videos. Uh, do you miss the rear view? For example, when launching from the space station, I miss looking back and seeing it disappear into the distance. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's one of the things that I really thought about when we went down to the BAFTAs is the fact that the graphics on this game are just immense. And if you see it on a big screen, you know, really, as nice as it is to look at the cockpit, um, you just want to be able to sort of zoom around your ship and, and, and see things from various different angles. So, yeah, I do miss the external view. And, I mean, okay, it's not implemented at the moment, but I don't think there's been anything said at the moment that it's going to be, yeah, it's not going to be there in the final game, has there? I can see it interfering with certain aspects of multiplayer stealth. I mean, the, the game is obviously very different to the, the situation we had with Frontier, which was obviously a single-player experience, and, you know, you could sort of look around in order to get a nice look at the, the scenery. But I think I, I raise this because if you're used to playing... As an example, if you're used to playing first-person shooters in multiplayer... A few years ago, I played uh, the Uncharted series in multiplayer. And actually, in a third-person shooter, you have to completely change your mindset about how shooting at other players works. Because in a first-person shooter, if you're behind somebody and you can see the back of their head, they can't see you. Whereas in a third-person shooter, if you can see the player, even if they're facing away from you, they can probably see you because they've got this camera that can look all around them and they might be running along with the camera viewed at the kind of rear view. So I think in terms of, you know, if you're talking about multiplayer stealth in Elite Dangerous and you're talking about the possibility that some ships have a, maybe have a sensor blind spot behind the engines or anything like that, because we have talked about that a bit. I think if you just have the ability to, you know, move your camera around in a circle and see what's going on behind you, I don't know, does that break something? It might do, it might not. But I think, you know, I think there will be questions in Frontier's mind about whether to implement an external camera that really just go beyond technical considerations. Because really, technically, it's actually quite a trivial thing to do. Um, yeah, I think Colin's point was that, you know, he can understand the reasoning why not to have an external camera. I think his point was about like a rear-facing camera, like a rear-view mirror. Yeah, and even in the original version of, of Elite, you had the kind of face-forward, face-left and right and face-behind buttons. Yeah. Um, and there is a part of me that feels like it somehow won't feel very elite if it doesn't at least have those four. I think I'd agree with that as well. Um, next question. Johnny White asks, David Braben has been keen to point out about no artificial gravity in space except in rotating areas of capital ships or stations. What happens if those fine guys at CERN accidentally discover how to create it? Have you got a thought about this? That seems a little unlikely, doesn't it? Well, he's meaning, you know, like, in I don't know, maybe in a hundred years' time. We'll be going, oh, that elite game 100 years ago, it got it so wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, the one thing I'd say is that this this kind of was what David Braben was talking about. He kind of, I don't know, maybe he contradicted himself. Because in the talk at the BAFTAs, he said that uh, the reason that they have 
spinning spaceships is that they want to conserve energy. You know, they don't want to waste it. And yet later on in the talk, and I think later in an interview, he basically said that energy in the future will be free. And, you know, so, you know, people can do ridiculous things. So I, I don't know exactly where that fits in. Um, with the whole artificial gravity. But there's other things apart from purely energy that might be a problem for artificial gravity. You know, I mean, somebody could invent, you know, an artificial gravity beam, which could, you know, do what he's talking about, you know, the Star Trek, you know, anti-gravity. But for instance, you know, the requirements, you know, it it might require like a large amount of space for whatever gadget is going to do it. And so, you know, it would be a trade-off between that space and weapons on a ship or a capital ship, or even, you know, you know, artificial gravity and um, some other important thing on a space station. So it's not just necessarily energy requirements. And so I don't think it's a problem if CERN discovered it tomorrow that it would be a problem. You know, I'm sure that you could think of a reason to explain it away anyway. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So I, I, th- I think any sort of stuff that you, you put in as kind of speculative science fiction that then gets proved wrong, I think you just have to accept that that's what happens with sci-fi. I mean... You know, Elite Dangerous is not going to be proved to be an accurate representation. If you look at it in the year 3300, we're not going to look at Elite Dangerous and say, wow, they got, they got our world completely right. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, and you mentioned Star Trek. Star Trek's a good example because you can't predict the pace of change. Something like Star Trek, they still have massively imaginative spaceships that we still have no idea how to build. And yet their onboard computers don't even look as good as my first computer I had. <laughs> so, you know, you got, you know I've, now, I've now got a phone that does everything that the Enterprise's entire mainframe was capable of doing and more. So you can't, you know, you can't predict which things will and won't be invented. And I think, you know, that's just the thing with science fiction. You have to accept that when you're a science fiction writer or creator, you have to accept that everything you write will eventually be proved to be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the things that happened in a lot of the 80s science fiction was the fact that nobody in the 80s seemed to think that mobile phones were ever going to be invented. I was talking to uh, Adam Rosseff on the BBC that we met at the BAFTAs, and yeah, one of the things he mentions is the fact that, you know, if you look at Back to the Future, for example, yeah, Back to the Future 2, there's not a single mobile phone in, you know, in anybody's hand. Uh, and it, again, it's just some things they pick up on, some things they don't. You're never going to get it right all the time. So. I love the fact that Back to the Future 2, they still had fax machines in the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are we never going to get a shot of them? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should add that as a way to get in touch with the show. Maybe, you know, you can either Skype us, you can Twitter us, or if you want to first send us a fax, you can do. I think Alpha 4 needs a fax machine on the cockpit dash. <laughs> I'm thinking that uh, if, we, if we did actually have a fax number, we would be inundated. Yeah, that's what the elite community is waiting for. <laughs> okay, well, let's just maybe park that and go on to the next question which again from Johnny White it says the interior of the Coriolis station didn't appear to have many pads on it in the multiplayer alpha how many ships have people seen having docked Uh, I think this is a tricky one isn't it because even though I think there's probably sort of 25 pads within the the station itself all the pads actually link to uh, the underground hangars so just because you've got 25 pads and display and the actual uh, central bit doesn't actually relate to how many ships are parked in the uh, in the hangars underneath them, and I think that they intentionally try and make it look a bit busier, don't they? You know, I'm sure it's not Commander Blackley every time I go in there that's got an anaconda park down there. I think that you know it's all um, simulated anyway. So I think 
even for instance, they've said that uh, in the core systems, you know, you're going to be coming to a space station, you might have to queue outside. You know, that's going to be a purely simulated thing, which makes you wonder, you know, are people going to get a bit pissed off with Frontier for making them wait outside of a station purely for simulation reasons? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. I think there is a certain amount of... Uh... <laughs> of making the spaceport look busy which I mean yeah, over- once or twice in Frontier though. once or twice <laughs> all the time I would go to Mars you know orbiter oh I'm sorry and I'd be like oh it done my head in it really did my head in <laughs> <laughs> oh dear okay well uh, Marcus Evans asks uh, will there be Thargoids in Alpha Fall I doubt it unless we, they've suddenly become a, a sellable commodity maybe Thargoid pieces or something like that or Thargoid stew or or something I can't imagine we're going to see Thargoids this early on in the uh, in the Alpha process in fact if it's all in the game to start off with Alpha 4 I'm assuming multiple stations hopefully a few additional designs how many planets slash systems will it be a milk run or will there be enough routes to offer choice is it time to get my spreadsheet warmed up again uh, and he also asks, discussing the real alpha experience we're getting, how is this what should be expected of an alpha and how quickly FD are getting patches out to try and make the key issues less of an obstacle to continuing testing? Well, I think we covered the second of those points at the beginning. It, I, I don't know, in terms of multiple spaceships, uh, multiple space stations, it depends really on how quickly their kind of their pipeline for assets, uh, you know, how, how committed they are to developing stuff because i think i think that space station is quite a big asset to have to build um and i think if it's just throwing something together for an alpha it might be too much of an ask to suddenly expect three or four you know different types of space station but i mean it might be once they've done the designs and they've kind of proven that their concept of the coriolis the concept of the station works functionally they might now be saying to their to their asset guys yeah this is great you know start putting um components together for us but i think i i I suspect given the large number of bugs that have surrounded the coriolis station just vanishing and reappearing for no apparently good reason that they're probably going to try and iron out that before they try and throw different models at it that's just a gut feeling i don't know well i mean given that uh, i don't want to sound like i'm on a downer now but given the issues they've had with the coriolis which if you think about it is a single model you know that has been handcrafted uh, based because of previous games. If we go back to what they were previously talking about, having space uh, space stations in effect generated procedurally from components. You know, I mean that's that's not just you know creating new space stations in in a 3D designer. You know, there's going to be a whole load more complexity to deal with. So I'll be interested to see you know if we will see that in the alpha or whether. We're going to see it a lot later. Okay, and moving on to the final question of the episode, and that one comes in from uh, Commander Woody. Uh, It says, Hi guys, following on from the chat on the Elite Dangerous Skype channel, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the method by which Frontier have fixed the need for... Uh, UPNP or manual port configuration for multiplayer action they certainly seem to have done the job <coughs> okay well I'm not really up on uh, I think it's obvious from the first uh, alpha release that I've got no idea how my router works so John you're probably the best place person to uh, to answer this one there have been improvements I know it's hard to tell with 3.2 as I said you know I'm frustrated myself with a lot of network issues but if you if you go back to you know the first multiplayer alpha you know 2.0 I couldn't even play couldn't even connect to the server. Um, that's been resolved. Then we had the issue of, okay, we can connect, but don't see many players, or we only see the same two or maybe three people 
every night and that is it that has been resolved now i mean when i do manage to get into the alpha i find myself connecting to lots of players and you know it's usually vastly different players so i think in those terms it's it's i think that i don't know what they've done to get the upnp working in in such a consistent way like that i mean but there are ex, you know existing uh, networking issues, as I mentioned earlier, with you know flooding my network and a lot of rubber banding and things like that. So I think it has improved, as some of the developers have said on the forums, that it's only now that um, some bugs have been fixed, that some bugs are now being found. I, I wait until the next version before I uh, say anything else. Yeah, there is a there is a thing in programming. I don't know if you've had this yourself, John, but sometimes you um, you find a bug. And then in, 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 in finding the bug, you then look at another piece of code, which you assume has been working. And you look at it and you think, there is no way that piece of code can possibly work. I don't understand why I'm not having to fix it. Well, and, and there's the old, you know, you fix one bug and then you create three more. And also at the same time, you know, as you said, sometimes just by going through all of the bugs, you, you, you find yourself hitting code that you wouldn't have hit otherwise. And, and so you open up like a Pandora's box, I guess. And lastly on this week's show, we have the uh, shout-outs and some feedback. Okay, and our first shout-out goes to Scott Manley, who interviewed David Braben in a hotel room at the GDC at, in San Francisco recently. Uh, that was a very long but very good interview where Scott talks to David about the current incarnation, the Alpha, Oculus Rift, and basically gets a, a, a really good insight as to where the game's going. So if you want to check out the show notes uh, for the link to Scott Manley interview... Uh, that will be up as soon as the show goes live. Uh, and I think what that interview really demonstrates is how hard it's going to be to be sociable with people while wearing an Oculus Rift. Because <laughs> it's quite entertaining watching him trying to interview David Braben with an Oculus Rift strapped to his head. <laughs> yeah, we see now that Facebook's come involved, David Braben should also have been wearing an Oculus Rift, and that way it would be much more sociable. I'm also glad to see someone who seems to be more awkward in the presence of David Braben than we were. <laughs> I find that hard to believe, but yes, actually, no, the video does play that out. Another shout-out goes out to Adam Rosser uh, from the BBC, who gave us uh, an interview at BAFTA. Uh, his coverage of the BAFTA event is up on SoundCloud, if you want to go and check that out. That's up in the show notes as well. Okay, and a special shout-out goes to a Kickstarter. Uh, Kickstarter being run by Julian Gollop, and name you might remember from XCOM, UFO and the Unknown, from Rebel Star, and the game he's bringing back, Chaos. Chaos Battle of Wizards uh, was one of the games that I loved playing on my old uh, Spectrum computer. And if you go to the Kickstarter, you should see that uh, he's bringing the game back, which I think is fantastic. John? Yeah, I mean, if, if there was another game that, you know, I... I thought of back in the microcomputer era, apart from, you know, Elite and before I got my Amiga. I think for me, Chaos defined my Spectrum, my ZX Spectrum gaming experience. So for me to be part of the Elite Dangerous Kickstarter and then another Kickstarter come along, which is like just so key to who I am as a gamer, you know, I'm really in my element at the moment. So if any of you had a ZX Spectrum and you remember playing Chaos, you'll, I'm sure you'll agree that it was an epic game. And so, um, you definitely want to be part of it. It's a good deal to get in on early alpha access. Um, I think it's like fifteen, twenty dollars or something. With the animation that they're planning, you know, it's going to look very pretty. But also, they're staying very true to the, you know, the turn-based strategy. So um, all the purists should love it. Yeah, and, and for those that you know, if, if perhaps you're, you're listening to this and you're not familiar with his work, Julian Gollop is an absolute 
you know legend in the field of, of turn-based strategy uh, i mean obviously the original um ufo enemy unknown called XCOM in the states you know that that was an incredible thing laser squad was an incredible thing um he's just it's funny talking about it on an elite podcast because in some respects um, he's quite similar to David Braben in the sense that he's got this idea in his head of this kind of this game experience that he wants to that he really wants to seem to sort of communicate. And and each each time I find that he releases a game, there's just the, the strategy in it and the balance in it is just so well defined. If you like turn-based strategy, this is definitely something you want to look at. Um, and if you want to back it, I've done the convenience <laughs> of putting together. Um, if you go to tinyurl.com forward slash chaos reborn kick, uh, that'll take you straight to it without needing to kind of search or stuff. Great stuff. Okay. And the last shout out slightly out of left field is for my brother's podcast, Dundee NFL. If any of you out there are actually interested in NFL football, uh, it's a Really good podcast for keeping up to date on the latest news and uh, reviews of what's going on. The latest show has actually got an interview with Jeff Reinbold, who is the uh, Sky Sports uh, host for all of the NFL stuff that goes on there. It's a really interesting interview, so go and check that out at DundeeNFL.com. Nepotism, eh? Nepotism. You've got to do it. Okay, and finally for the show, one uh, iTunes review that's come in. Uh, this one's from Nexus Reject. Quite amusingly, his title for his review is Lave Radio, easier to get into than the station at Zalada, uh, which made me chuckle. So thank you very much for doing that. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can. You can send us an email at info at laveradio.com. On Twitter, we are at Lave Radio. On Facebook, just forward slash Lave Radio. If you'd like to call us on Skype and leave us a voicemail, you can at lave.radio. And if you'd like to join the Elite Dangerous Skype chat channel, just add FOSA 101 to your Skype contacts. That's it for this show. Thank you very much to John and Chris, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, because another game that I was interested in that actually um, I missed when it was on Kickstarter, but is now completed and out, is Banner Saga, which is this sort of um, Norse Viking turn-based strategy thing.
They're not going to have King.com after them, are they? Hey, what? What? Oh, no, there was... You know, yeah, there, there was this discussion about the fact that their game is called Banner Saga and they wanted... They applied for some trademark of their name and King basically have blocked them being able to trademark their name as Banner Saga. That's which is nice. stupid because a story about a bunch of Viking warriors travelling across a landscape is a saga, whereas a bunch of stupid <laughs> fucking jewels and vegetables in a field is in no way a saga. <laughs> Stretching there's, the definition yeah, of there saga. There is nothing saga about it. 